Hi, I'm Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode number 10 in the series titled, The Biblical Worldview of the Spirit Realm. The topic today is that of various rebellions that have taken place and are yet to take place in the unseen realm in the future. Before I forget about it, I'd like to ask that if you're getting anything out of the podcast and think others could benefit from it, please consider doing things like clicking on the like buttons, following the podcast on your podcast provider, and sharing links to others. Because of the way the algorithms work, it really does make a difference with the exposure of the podcast. You know, I know it's all in God's hands how He wants to use it. But right now, the exposure of the podcast is pretty much limited to word of mouth and my Facebook page. I love looking at where my analytical tools say that people are listening from. Mostly Washington, Oregon, but also from all over the U.S., like Texas, Florida, New Jersey, and Maryland, many other states, the occasional U.K., and even New Zealand. And I know who you are down there. (laughs) I know a few of you personally because you tell me that you're listening. But as for the rest, it absolutely thrills me to know I have brothers and sisters in Jesus from all over the place who are taking the time to consider what Scripture says along with me. I'm grateful for each and every one of you listening, and I'm so honored that you are. Well, as I've said many times now, all beings, whether supernatural or natural, were created by Yahweh, the Most High God. Free will, as I'll use the term here, is the apparent ability of a created being to act autonomously according to its own discretion, from its own perspective. It appears to to the created being, like you and me, that they're given, or we're given, freedom to make a choice. Yet, and here's the important part, in reality, from God's perspective, God not only has foreknowledge of what that choice will be, He is scripted and approved of that choice as a part of his story and plan. And following this script that he's written is irresistible. If you believe in a sovereign God, it can be no other way. Things are either going according to his plan or they are not. He's either in control or he is not. Things are either getting off track and he has to react to our choices and our will or we are irresistibly attracted to acting according to His will and His plan. Well, free will and predestination or sovereignty could be the topic of an entire series. For now, I just wanted to let you know where I'm coming from when I am talking about free will or choice. With this definition in mind, based on what we see in Scripture, supernatural beings appear to have the same free will as humans do. They can choose to follow God or act in rebellion against Him. Well, this is a novel idea to those who have always viewed angels like a robot or an obedient stagehand who acts perfectly in response to God's commands. Many supernatural beings have in the past and will in the future rebel against God. There's no reason to think that all supernatural beings who have rebelled against God all did so at the same time or under the same circumstances 
as classic, simplistic teaching proposes. Misusing the few scriptures that deal with this issue, the normal picture of the fall of Satan and the demons is that sometime prior to deceiving Eve in the garden, Satan convinced a third of the angels to follow him instead of God. That is not biblically accurate. We'll talk about what is accurate in this episode. So that we don't get hung up on debates over terminology, when I use the term fall or fell, as in fallen or in fallen angel, I'm primarily talking about an act of rebellion. The rebellion results in the fall of angels from heaven. That means different things. They may have been limited to normally dwelling on the earth and no longer in heaven. They may have been bound up and are being held in hell. They may have left the heavenly realm and joined Satan in his unholy crusade on the earth. For our purposes here, falling can also mean losing status as an angel in good standing with God, while being allowed to continue with their current assignment, even if only temporarily. Well, what follows is a brief discussion of a few different high-profile rebellions of angels which led to falls in the Bible. Well, let's start with the first, and probably the most well-known of the rebellions. The Nahash, a.k.a. the serpent, who lived in the Garden of Eden, was the first to rebel against God. Probably a good number of you are <laughs> wondering, who in the heck's the Nakash? Well, Nakash, when transliterated into English, is spelled N-A-C-H-A-S-H. It's the Hebrew word for that most, what most versions of the Bible have translated into English, serpent. Without going into too much detail, and probably more than what you may want me to, but uh, the word nakash, because the early Hebrew language did not include vowels in the written word, may represent a double or even triple entendre wordplay. Depending on the vowels you insert into nakash, the word may mean the diviner or enchanter, which is a communicator with the spirit world. Because of the later use of the word in the ancient world we find in scripture, nakash is also associated with shiny metals like copper or bronze. In fact, there's a Palestinian city mentioned in the Bible called Nahash, which means the city of copper or bronze. At the same time, Nahash was also known as the city of the serpent. Since metals such as copper are shiny when they're polished, forms of the word are used to describe angelic beings when they're said to look like brass. The Nahash was an image that was typically associated with a divine throne guardian, a being who would be situated to hear things directly from the throne of God. The Nahash is spoken of in the Garden of Eden is Satan. If either or both Isaiah chapter 14 or Ezekiel chapter 28 that we've looked at in the past represent the Nakash, then Satan was likely a beautiful, high-ranking insider in the throne room of God. Let me just read part of the Ezekiel 28 passage as a reminder. This is Ezekiel 28 verses 12 to 16. You were the signet of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, 
they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways. And from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence, and in your midst, you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. The being called the king of Tyre in this Ezekiel 28 passage was a cherub who was in the Garden of Eden. Setting aside the classic talking snake scenario for a moment provides us a possible answer to some common questions like, why didn't Eve totally freak out when she was confronted by a talking snake and like run away? Why would she have trusted its opinions about what God meant and what the Nakash said about becoming like a God? Why don't snakes talk now? No one knows the answers to those questions for sure but the answers may be found in that it is plausible that Adam and Eve were aware of the presence of supernatural beings such as cherubs in the garden. We know the eyes of Adam and Eve were open to at least part of the spirit realm. They did, after all, walk with God in the cool of the day, and after Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden, we read of a cherub with a flaming fire being posted at the entrance to the garden to keep them out. Well, they saw that guy. It is possible that Adam and Eve did not know the difference between physical and supernatural beings who had all been present since the time that they, Adam and Eve, were created. They may have seen such supernatural beings regularly interact with God, who also walked in the garden. Adam and Eve may have even interacted with such beings themselves prior to the infamous act of the Nakash deceiving Eve. Maybe one day, when we're on the other side of the veil with Jesus, we'll be able to have a conversation with those heavenly creatures who are present for creation and ask them some of these questions. But for now, we can't know any of these answers for sure. However, we do know that there is very likely more to the Nakash than simply Satan being manifested as a snake. As far as we know, the Nakash acted alone in the garden. What he did did not require a third of the angels to rebel with him, and nothing of the sort is indicated in the text. We have no scriptural reason to believe what the Nakash did was part of a conspiracy. It isn't until the book of Revelation that we learn of any large-scale, coordinated, Satan-led, fallen angel movement and that doesn't appear to have happened until sometime just prior to Jesus' first coming to this earth. We'll talk more about that. Satan's motivation for rebelling and acting against God may have been jealousy. Why would God give the humans dominion over the earth that he'd just created? Whatever his motivation was, the Nakash did what he did to thwart Yahweh's plans. The Nakash had likely heard the warning to Adam and Eve and knew death would be the result of Adam and Eve's own rebellion against God. He set out to cause that death. Here's what he said to Eve. This is in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the Nakash, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, 
You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the Nikah said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The phrase, and you will be like God, since it uses the word Elohim and not Yahweh, could be just as easily translated as, you will be like the gods, or the angelic beings they may have been familiar with or interacting with in the garden. Of course, they ate the forbidden fruit, thereby rebelling against God themselves. As a result of his actions, the Nakash was cursed by God. Here's what God said to him in Genesis 3, verses 14 to 15. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If we read this passage with the classic translation of the Nakash in mind, it looks like we're talking about an animal that once could walk, but now was cursed to crawl on its belly like a snake, and it would eat dust unlike a snake. And that in the future, women would be upset by snakes. Her descendants would try to crush the snake's head, and the snakes would try to bruise the heel of her descendants. The Hebrew word translated as bruise here means to snap at or overwhelm. I'm in favor of a literal read of this passage. However, remember, while nakash means serpent, it may also carry the meaning here of divine communicator, or enchanter. Because of the greater biblical context and the possible multi-meaning name of Nakash, what we see in how most humans think of literal snakes is likely symbolic for what happened to the Nakash. Whatever form the Nakash previously had up until the time he interacted with Eve, as a part of this curse, God may have literally transformed him into the form of a snake. But the greater thing behind the curse was the loss of his position. Ezekiel 28 tells us that the being called the king of Tyre, who was in Eden, was cursed by God and cast down to the earth. That appears to be what happened to the Nakash. He was sentenced to lose his divine glory and status and live out his days on the earth. Jesus, the second Adam, thousands of years later accomplished what the first Adam was not able to accomplish. Jesus, the Son of God, was not deceived by Satan. He did not rebel against God, and he overcame death. The actions of Jesus bruised the head of Satan, the Nakash, the serpent. Although the serpent still runs free on the earth today, Jesus demonstrated to the serpent just who is in charge. Well, that's all the time we have for the Nakash right now. So let's move on to another rebellion. We've previously discussed the topic of angelic beings having been put in charge of the different cosmic realms of the earth after the Tower of Babel incident. These regional beings were selected for their individual characteristics. 
God knew that each regional angelic prince would treat the nations according to what they deserved. The nations were getting their inheritance, so they were going to get what they deserved. Or as scripture put it, what they would inherit based on their actions. There are Hebrew writings that taught that. However, these various principalities and powers being created by God with the abilities to do what he had given them to do appeared to have failed to do what they were supposed to do, thereby rebelling against God. In Psalms 82, we find Yahweh holding a divine assembly with the sons of God who seemed to be those who he had put in charge over the nations. One of the judgments God pronounces against the sons of God is that the people they have authority over are walking around in, quote, darkness. And because of that, the very, quote, foundations of the earth, unquote, are shaken. One by one, the angelic beings failed to direct people's devotion to the one true God, and instead represented themselves to be gods and allowed themselves to be worshipped by humans. The Old Testament is full of accounts of what are called gods other than Yahweh. There are commonalities between the gods, but every geographic region had its own set of them. It's the worship of these angelic beings who are posing as gods that the Song of Moses found in Deuteronomy 32 warns the Israelites of as being the cause of their future troubles. Not by coincidence, the Song of Moses is where we're also given the details about angels being given authority over the nations. The Hebrews understood that many different people worshipped many different gods. The names of the cities surrounding Israel were often given the names of the gods that they were worshipping. This makes a lot of sense in light of spiritual beings being given authority over the physical geographic locations. Although they knew there was only one true God, and certainly only one God for them, they were still aware of the other Elohim. They also knew that it would not be until a future time, at the end of the age, that all the other gods would be done away with. It would not be until that time that Yahweh would be considered by all to be king over the entire earth. And speaking of that time yet in the future, Zechariah wrote the following. Notice the future tense used. This is Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day... The Lord will be one, and His name one. Until the end of the age, God is allowing other created beings, which the Bible calls Elohim, or gods, to influence the world. Today, many of these gods are still worshipped openly by many different names. Islam's Allah, Hinduism's Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, the many African gods like Shango, Obatala, and Bumba, there are still thousands of gods people are praying to and worshipping across the world. In Thailand, most businesses and houses have a structure outside called a spirit house. Those spirit houses are dedicated to honoring the guardians of the land and to protect them from any wayward spirits. Yes, some of these gods are likely only gods of the imagination. Others are only gods of stone and wood. But 
Others are the same real supernatural beings that were given jobs to do by Yahweh many years ago that have rebelled against Him by receiving worship from people. In the end, all false gods, whether angelic beings or wood and stone, were created by Yahweh. Here's the offensive common denominator. People were and are worshiping things that were created by God and not the Creator Himself. Romans chapter 1, 24-25 says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In the last two episodes, we discussed the rebellion of the sons of God who left heaven and descended to the earth where they slept with human women and created an evil hybrid race of people called the Nephilim. I won't go over all that again. I just want to make sure to list them among all of these rebellions. For now, let's move on to what I like to call the Let's Kill Jesus Rebellion. It might be likened to a grand invasion like the Allied troops storming the beaches in Normandy. Except the forces of evil are the ones doing the storming of the beaches. But before I elaborate on this invasion, allow me to upset yet another apple cart. I already alluded to this, but there's no evidence in the Bible to support the classic notion that Satan rebelled prior to the earth being formed and that he had already convinced a third of all the angels to follow him in some sort of grand pre-creation conspiracy, at which time they all became Satan's willing demonic minions. That common idea comes from a misinterpretation of a passage in the book of Revelation, which is pulled out of context. In Revelation chapter 12, the Apostle John was witness to what he called a great sign appearing in the heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of twelve stars. This vision contained the same imagery as Joseph's dream documented in Genesis 37, where his brothers appeared as eleven stars, his mother's the moon, and his father Jacob, or Israel, was the sun. There's little doubt that this woman of Revelation chapter 12 is a symbol for the nation of Israel who, via Mary, gave birth to a male child, Jesus. There's a lot of kooky interpretations of what this passage means, who this woman represents. But any first century Jew who is knowledgeable of Scripture would have instantly recognized this to be the vision that Joseph had and that the woman represents Israel. There may be more to that vision and what it means as far as the signs that may occur in the heavens, but I'm not going to go into that now. For now, let me just say that as recently as 2016, people misinterpreted that vision to mean that Jesus was going to return and rapture the church. That didn't happen. Okay. The only thing I want to do for now is provide the identification of the woman in the vision, and that's Israel. The woman is seen giving birth to a significant male child, That's Jesus. Scripture also identifies for us that the dragon in chapter 12 is Satan. Having these symbols identified, let me read for you a different part of the vision. This is Revelation chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. 
His, Satan's, tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon, Satan, stood before the woman, Israel via Mary, who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, Jesus, he, Satan, might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, Jesus, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This passage is telling us that sometime prior to the birth of Jesus, we're not told how much before, that Satan summons or sweeps with his figurative tail what may be a third of the heavenly angels who are referred to as stars to the earth for the purpose of destroying God's Son, Jesus. It's implied that Satan knew the birth of the male child, the Messiah, was going to take place. Satan is not omniscient. He does not know what's going on in the mind of God. But he can read and understand scripture. He can listen in on conversations between wise men who are traveling to see a king of Israel being born according to prophecy. It could be that Satan's plan to kill the Messiah and the recruitment of his unholy angels began to take shape as soon as he figured out Yahweh's plans involved the birth of a human Messiah. But that plan backfired on Satan in a big way. Let's talk about the number of angelic beings involved here. Using prophetic visions of heaven as a clue, we see, for example, in the book of Daniel, at least a hundred million angels standing before the throne in heaven. This is a vision of either the time of Jesus' ascension or at the end of this age. Either way, the vision was of a time after Satan had taken a third of the angels with him in his effort to do away with Yahweh's Messiah. Simple math, which in this case may be oversimplifying things, tells us that the hundred million angels remaining in heaven would represent two-thirds of an original 150 million angels. That means, if the numbers are to be taken literally, that Satan's forces would consist of around 50 million fallen angels. Whether the numbers are meant to be taken literally or not in Daniel, which is a different discussion, they are meant to represent an incredible, overwhelming number of angels. From the very beginning of Jesus' life, we see Satan, through King Herod, trying to kill Jesus. It just turns out that, as I'm recording this, it's less than two weeks away from Christmas when we celebrate the birth of the Messiah. Most of us are familiar with the story of the shepherds guarding the sheep in the fields of Bethlehem. Let me read that passage. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, 
goodwill towards men. An angel, accompanied by a multitude of other angels, praising God. However, I don't think they just showed up to tell a few shepherds about the birth of the Messiah and then sing some Christmas carols. I believe this was a heavenly security detail assigned to protect Yahweh's Son. It was a tremendous show of force. No one was going to interfere with the coming of the Messiah into this world. Later, shortly after Jesus' baptism, we see Jesus being tempted by Satan. During Jesus' life, we know he had many brushes with demons. They recognized him. Then, Satan ultimately entered into Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' twelve trusted disciples, and he was responsible for betraying Jesus. Satan left nothing to chance to orchestrate the capture, humiliation, and execution of the Son of God. He counted millions of angels on his side, tens of millions of angels, that for some reason bet against their Creator, Yahweh. Satan was likely expecting great spiritual resistance, but to his surprise, he didn't get any. Interestingly, when Jesus was being taken into custody, he told his disciples to put away their swords, and he said, Are you not aware that I can call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen in this way? Satan was playing right into what had been planned by Yahweh all along. What Satan intended for evil, destroying the Messiah, thereby assuring that his kingdom would remain as is on the earth, it actually resulted in good. Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven where he sat down at the right hand of his Father. The ascension is what Revelation 12.5 is saying when it says, but her child was caught up to God and His throne. The crucifixion made possible the realization of God's mysterious plan, that Jesus will one day return to the earth to do away with all supernatural realm transgressors and establish His worldwide kingdom, ruling and reigning over the entire planet with those elected to salvation He has purchased with His blood. Until then... God is continually making His plan known to principalities and powers in the heavenlies, by one at a time calling the elect out from among the rest of the Gentiles who are under Satan's authority. I'm guessing Satan cringes at this every time it happens. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 8 that if the rulers of this age would have understood the secret and hidden wisdom of God concerning what Jesus was going to accomplish— that they would have not crucified him. Surely, Satan, who Jesus called the ruler of this world, is counted among who this passage is referring to. Jesus being caught up to God and his throne in heaven in Revelation 12.5 is describing Jesus' ascension after his resurrection. The vision John had then fast-forwards in time to the end of the age. You can listen to what I think Scripture tells us about the end of the age in the first series I did of the Called Out Cafe. But, according to my own take on eschatology, John found himself and was describing a time which was halfway through the tribulation period that will precede the establishment of Jesus' kingdom on the earth, with 1260 days, or three and a half years, remaining. 
This is the same time that the Antichrist, who Paul calls the man of sin and lawlessness, will be revealed. John witnesses a dramatic war break out in heaven at that time. He writes of a conflict in which Satan leads his angels in open rebellion against God in heaven. You may notice how John, in the following passage, now refers to the beings as angels rather than stars. This is an example of how the book of Revelation often defines its own symbolism in the immediate context. This confirms the definition of the symbolism of stars representing angels a short time earlier in the same chapter. As a result of this rebellion, Satan is cast down from heaven to the earth for the last time and finally limited to the earth. He will never again be permitted back into heaven. This is Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When this rebellion takes place, and Satan's finally cast down to the earth, he's frankly pissed off like never before. He'll personally act through his Antichrist puppet, primarily targeting and persecuting the Jews. The dragon, or Satan, becomes furious with the woman, or Israel, but then also goes to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who is that offspring? It's those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, Christians. During this time, rather than utilizing deception, it looks like Satan will be utilizing violence to destroy Israel and the ecclesia. Of course, Jesus rescues the faithful remnant of Israel and the ecclesia, and Satan fails miserably. As far as I know, this is the only rebellion we're given a specific time reference for in the Bible. That corresponds with the specific signs that will take place on the earth in the future. This would take a long time to go through all the explanation as to why I'm saying this, but in my opinion, for those who are watchful, this fall of Satan and his angels is not an event that we will be left wondering if it's taken place or not. Like saying, well, things seem more evil these days. I wonder if Satan has been cast down to the earth like the book of Revelation says. No, it's a matter of knowing and recognizing the signs given to us to know when this is happening. For example, the revealing of the Antichrist and the things that the Bible lists that he will do. If you're interested in the topic of the end of the age, and you really should be, <laughs> let me again suggest that you go back and you listen to my first podcast series, 
based on my book, uh, which is based on Jesus's Olivet Discourse, where he's talking about his return to this earth. Uh, that book is called Watch. And you can, again, listen to that podcast series, or you can read the book available on Amazon. Anyway, moving on to the final rebellion. According to my take on eschatology, following the sequential events outlined in Revelation, after the Armageddon event, and just prior to Jesus establishing his literal physical kingdom on this earth for what's called a thousand years, Satan is bound up and cast into the pit so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Well, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth, the devil is released and does what he does. He deceives, rebels, and brings about a human rebellion one last time before he is quickly dealt with and cast this time not into the pit or hell, but into the lake of fire. I'm going to read that passage for you. This is found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This lake of fire is defined directly in context as not being a fire that destroys and consumes, but that provides torment day and night forever and ever. Well, this is and is not a little bit of a rabbit trail. But since it pertains to a fall of angelic beings and their current status along with Satan's, I want to briefly address a teaching that sooner or later you're going to run into if you haven't already. It's the idea that Satan and his followers have already been bound and cast into hell and therefore are greatly limited in their abilities on this earth ever since Jesus' victory over sin and death. This idea is closely associated with what's called amillennialism, that there is no literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus on this earth. Amillennialists, rather, believe that since the cross, we have been experiencing the literal reign of Christ on this earth, but the thousand years was meant to be taken figuratively. So they believe that Satan has been bound up and cast into hell. Satan's in hell right now. Well, this is a large topic, and I don't have the time to adequately defend my arguments in this episode, but here's a summary of why I do not believe this is the case. The Revelation chapter 20 passage regarding Satan being bound and isolated is clear and absolute. Satan is not able to deceive the nations at all until the thousand years is over. There is nothing suggesting that he can even partially influence the nations in some sort of limited way. I'm not sure how John could have made it any clearer. Satan and his external evil influence on humans will not be a factor during the millennial reign of Christ. Satan cannot both be bound and still be the god of this world, left to prowl around like a roaring lion. 
Satan cannot be both in heaven, acting as an accuser of our brethren, and appearing as an angel of light, while he is bound up in the darkness of hell. Our battle cannot be against dark forces seated in heavenly places if Satan is bound with great chains and isolated in hell. If Satan is still allowed to roam the earth while he is said to be imprisoned, in my opinion, as a former corrections professional, God is a poor jailer. All of the things I just mentioned are based on Scripture. The apostles tell us that Satan currently prowls around like a roaring lion. He's the accuser of our brethren, and it's he and his dark forces that our war is with. Here are six quick reasons, maybe not so quick, I'm going to try though, why Satan is not currently bound, and we're not living in the millennial kingdom of Jesus right now. First, there has never existed a time in history that is described by the Old Testament prophets that occurs immediately after what's called the Day of the Lord. The period described and promised in detail is a golden era on this existing planet in which the Messiah rules over the earth, which has not been consumed by fire and destroyed as will happen after the millennial period, but it still has recognizable geographic features that we know today. The lion lays down with the lamb during that period of time, the millennial reign of Jesus. Weapons are beat into plows. People again live to old ages, but still die. Jesus rules from a temple in Jerusalem with a rod of iron because human beings will misbehave. Now, These are all things that go on during the millennial period. The nations of the earth will no longer be subject to other principalities and authorities in the heavens. They'll be united under Jesus' worldwide government and bring their tribute to Jerusalem. The millennium is the period described in the Bible. That's where all of these prophecies will be literally fulfilled. Okay, secondly, this point would take too long to show why, but utilizing a face value type set of hermeneutics, rules of interpretations, a prophetic sequence of events can be determined. The millennium, in which Satan is bound for a thousand years, fits in perfectly and logically as one of those future events. Again, if you're interested in that, read my book or listen to the podcast on on the book called Watch. Third, history reveals overwhelming evidence that Satan has been deceiving people both inside and outside the church since the time of Jesus. The efforts of Satan may be even greater since the cross than before. After all, It wasn't until sometime before Jesus was born that Satan swept a third of the angels to the earth with himself to thwart the plans of Yahweh. For the first hundred years of Christianity, false teaching in the form of Gnosticism and other pseudo-Christian hybrids outpaced Orthodox Christian teaching. What's taken place ever since that time, although in the name of Jesus, has seldom been Christ-like. The history of the church has been written many times. I'm arguing that the history of Jesus' ecclesia looks much different, and has to date never been written. What may appear at times as Satan's authority being limited may itself be deception. For example, I'm not sure that Emperor Constantine's embrace of the church was so much a major leap forward for Christendom as it was Satan saying, Well, if you can't beat him, join him. The argument that Satan has been bound so that the gospel may be spread seems to ignore history. Many, many false versions of the gospel have been spread. 
Satan did everything he could to physically erase Christianity from the face of the earth through ten major persecutions of the church within the first 300 years after Jesus. Millions of people today who call themselves Christians believe in a false version of who Jesus is. Satan has always been active. God has spread the gospel despite him. Okay, fourth, according to the book of Acts, demon possession, or people being demonized, or demonic activity, continued after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus into heaven. Number five, most early Christian writings indicate up until the end of the third century that they believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus as king on this earth following the resurrection. I think they were, but this is not to say they were correct. It does indicate what people believed in history as it transitioned from the time of the New Testament and the direct influence of the apostles. By the 3rd century, there were exceptions to this amongst theologians. Well, after the Romanization of the church, as more began to look at prophetic scriptures more metaphorically and figuratively or symbolically, the idea of amillennialism became more popular as did replacement theology, the idea that the church has replaced the Jews and will receive all that was promised to them. Finally, number six, another reason why it may appear at time that Satan's authority has been limited, as amillennialism suggests, is not because he has been bound up and isolated, as Revelation tells us he will be, but because he's lost his authority over those who are elect and make up the ecclesia, the church. Those who belong to Jesus are no longer children of the devil, but children of God and of the light. It's not that the world is no longer in the dark, in the dark kingdom of Satan. It's that Jesus has introduced his light into the dark world in the form of sojourners who belong to him, who are like aliens living in a foreign land. Hopefully, that includes you and I. The light in a dark world exists in the form of individual members of his ecclesia spread throughout the Gentile nations, making known the mystery of God to those authorities and powers seated in the heavenly realm who currently hold power over them. For those of us who once were dead in sin and made alive because of the efforts of Jesus, we've had our transgressions set aside and nailed to the cross as Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Yet for the unsaved, those who do not belong to Jesus, they continue to walk in darkness and are subject to Satan and his minions. No, Satan is not currently locked up. This last point leads me to expand on what may be called another fall of Satan. We read of it in Luke chapter 10. There, Jesus sends out 72 people representing him to every town and place that he was getting ready to travel to. Jesus was no longer operating in secret. The mission of these 72 that were sent out was to prepare the communities for Jesus' visit. He told them to heal the sick and tell the people that the kingdom of God has come near to you. When these 72 returned to Jesus, they informed Jesus that, quote, even the demons are subject to us in your name, unquote. Jesus responded to them with the following words. This is from Luke chapter 10, verses 18 to 20. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in that your names are written in heaven. If you read on in that passage, Jesus appears to be almost giddy about what just occurred and has been revealed to his 72 helpers. The possibility exists that this story only contains a historical account of what occurred as Jesus prepared to reveal himself to the people of Israel. He gave these 72 individuals the authority to heal the sick, cast out demons, tread on serpents, and scorpions without being hurt, as well as having authority over all the power of the enemy. He clearly told the disciples that the spirits were subject to them, but not to be joyful about that, but rather because their names are written in heaven. They should be joyful because they were counted among the elect. It's clear to me that although Jesus may have been alluding to Satan's ultimate fall and demise in the future when he is cast out of heaven by the archangel Michael to this earth, and then finally bound and thrown into hell, that Jesus is talking about Satan's loss of authority regarding the elect of God. The demons, Satan's angels, had been placed in subjection to Jesus and his name, even before Jesus' work on the cross had been accomplished. They remain in subjection to his name, as he's been seated in power at the right hand of his Father. What is not as clear is how this relates to us today. Has Jesus granted the elect on earth today, those whose names are written in heaven, the same authority over demons as he did the 72 disciples? Or was that for a specific purpose at that specific time? The purpose being establishing who he was, the Messiah. Well, that's a good question. Well, I haven't tried it lately. In fact, I've never done this. (laughs) But I would suspect if I were to tread on a rattlesnake, or scorpions, that I would get bit or stung, and either get extremely sick or die. Unlike what Jesus told the 72, there are clearly things that can hurt me. Next, since the 72 disciples all ultimately died of something, eventually something killed or technically hurt their bodies that led to their death. It seems most likely that the physical protections given to the 72 were temporary and related to the mission that Jesus had given them to accomplish. So the question then becomes, did that pertain to the authority and protection related to the spirit realm also? And would the same be true for us? Again, that's another great question. The short answer I've arrived at is that I think it depends. How is <laughs> that for a straight answer? There is nothing magic about the sounds and letters that make up Jesus' name. The seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Shiva found this out when they tried to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, as Paul had been doing. The demons replied to them, the sons of Shiva, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? The demons said this to the seven sons of Shiva just before they used their human host to beat them all up. The demons knew Jesus, the one who the authority belongs to. And they knew Paul, God's elect and Jesus' apostle, who had been granted authority to use the authority behind Jesus' name. But just the name of Jesus, 
had no authority on its own. Clearly, since God declared it to be so, Satan and his angels have been subject to Jesus, just as they have always been to his Father. Based on what we see in the New Testament, my opinion is that only the elect have the right to use Jesus' name, because Jesus has purchased them and they represent his household. Still, Members of a household should never use, or misuse, I mean, the name or resources of the master, or they're out there on their own. They must only use his name and resources to be about the master's business, or they're doing business without the master's authority. So if the, if the elect are acting according to the will of their master, they too, in my opinion, even today, carry with them the authority over demons if the need should ever arise to use that authority. In the end, I believe the significance of the passage pertaining to Satan falling like lightning is that Satan has been placed under the authority of Jesus. Although Jesus cast out his share of demons, the part demonization played in the rest of the New Testament is basically minor. There are only a few incidents mentioned in the book of Acts. Nevertheless, it is there. And we have no biblical reason to believe things are any different now regarding demonic activity than then. The techniques demons use may have morphed. Demonic activity may be more overt in some regions of the world than others. It may take on a more subtle form in places where overt demon possession would be counterproductive for Satan. After all, Satan doesn't want Westerners to even believe he's real. Even though we don't have spirit houses on every corner in the United States, or witch doctors running skewers through their cheeks in a a trance, Satan has a really successful evil plan going on in the West without a bunch of overt demonic activity. Well, I've mentioned a few times that I worked for our local sheriff's office for 25 years. I spent most of that time working in the corrections end of the criminal justice system. As a deputy, working in the segregation area of the jail, where the worst of the worst behaved people are kept, I saw things that could have been demon possession. People smearing themselves and the walls in their own feces. Banging on the bars for hour after hour throughout the entire night, screaming the entire time in bizarre tones. I mean, it seriously sounded like working in the pits of hell in the middle of night sometimes. One woman in particular, I remember, within five minutes, spoke to me as though I were her husband, her father, and finally screaming at me that I was Satan. She was really weird. I I remember a guy (laughs) crouched on his bed at three in the morning with his eyes open really wide and his pupils unnaturally dilated. He had his hand extended out, making signs with his fingers as he rotated back and forth, repeating the words, Mystic razors for mystic eyes. You know, don't get me started. Anyway, it's a real possibility that the people I'm talking about that I've had experience with were under some sort of demonic influence or possession. Demons are still around, and are still very much subject to the authority of Jesus. Belonging to Jesus, bearing His name, doing His will, 
and remaining hidden in Him is a great place to be. Well, that's quite a place to leave off, but I'm afraid it's time. Hey, did I ever tell you about the time (laughs) when a meditating inmate sent a spirit to check on me at home at the same time my wife Angela and I heard someone walking in our attic? (laughs) Well, that's a story that's going to have to wait and maybe never get told. I'm not laughing because there was anything funny about it. I'm laughing (laughs) because that's quite a thing to leave you with. Anyway, next time I'm going to talk about what God has done and will do in judgment towards spiritual beings who have rebelled. Until then, may God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com, or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long, and God bless. Thank you.